Hello everyone, uh, welcome to Thinking on Sunday. My name is Carmen de Cruz, I'm a trustee here at Conway Hall. Um, thank you all so much for coming, it's really nice to see so many of you here today. Um, I, I would be remiss of my duties as a trustee if I didn't mention that if you're not already a member, you can join for a very reasonable fee of £35 a year. Um, you can do that online. Um, the membership fee goes towards funding these talks um, and others that we have here. Um, the benefits of membership are supporting this incredible venue um, and also you get free entry or discounted entry um, to a lot of the events that are here. You get free entry to Thinking on Sunday, so um, after just a few weeks you've already made your money back. So that's uh, my first announcement. Um, the next one is uh, on the 30th of June, we've got Jonathan H. Marks talking about uh, the perils of partnership in public health. Uh, that's on the 30th of June, so if you haven't already done so, you can buy tickets online. Um, but then, without any further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to announce our talk for today. Um, we've got uh, Kerry Hudson and James Bloodworth in conversation, talking about Kerry's latest book. Um, Kerry was born in Aberdeen. Her first novel, Tony Hogan Bought Me an Ice Cream Float Before He Stole My Ma, won the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust First Book Award and was shortlisted for an array of prizes, including the Guardian First Book Award and the Sky Arts Award. First, her second novel won the prestigious Pre-Femina... Etranger. Yeah, I, was, I, I have a GCSE in French, but that's about it. Um, Lowborn is her first work of non-fiction, which we'll be talking about today. Um, James Bloodworth is the author of Hired, Six Months Undercover in Low-Wage Britain, and The Myth of Meritocracy. And you might remember him from about a year ago, where he gave a talk for my very first thinking on Sunday. Um, so, uh, oh, actually, one final, two final mentions. You can buy their books... Um, for a very reasonable price of $14.99 for Kerry's hardback book and James's book is $8.99. Um, you also, when you buy a book, as part of Independent Bookshop Week, receive a £5 off book tokens and there is enough for one each. So uh, do you get the books while they're still here because I'm sure that'll sell out. Um, and then uh, James and Kerry will be signing their books in the interval and then afterwards. Um, the talk will be about 45 minutes long, then we'll have a 15-minute break up until about 4 o'clock, followed by a Q&A for about 20 or 25 minutes with a view to wrapping up at 4.30, and then we go to the pub. So uh, <laughs> thank you all so much for coming. Uh, can we please have a lovely, warm round of applause for Jamie Perry? Hello, everyone. I've been told I have to speak into this mic, which means I've got to get really cosy with James. <laughs> oh, that would be... That would, there you go, James. You're, you've got a reprieve. <laughs> How's that? How's that? Hello, hello. Okay. <laughs> so I thought I'd start by reading a little bit of the introduction from Lowborn, which kind of gives a, a short overview as to why I started to decide to write it. Um, I have to say, before I read this introduction, because I won't read the whole thing, um, that when I say escaped or rose or ascended, I very much mean it in inverted commas, and a lot of the book is about that. So uh, don't get mad at me before we've even got five minutes into the event. <laughs> Here we go. Shall we start with a happy ending? I made it. I rose. I escaped poverty. I escaped bad food because that's all you can afford. I escaped threadbare clothes and too tight shoes. I escaped drinking or drugging myself into oblivion because, because? I probably escaped early mortality rates and preventable diseases. We'll see. 
I escaped obesity, I escaped the higher rate of domestic abuse, I escaped sink estates, burnt out houses, and ice cream vans selling drugs at the school gates. I escaped Jeremy Kyle in a shiny suit telling me my sort was scum. Um, as an aside, the week this book was published was the week that Jeremy Kyle went off air. <laughs> it was absolute cosmic retribution in my opinion. Um, I escaped casual grim violence fueled by frustration and special brew. I escaped benefits queues and means assessments and shitty zero hour contracts. I escaped hopelessness. I lived more of that life, my first 20 years, than I've lived of this infinitely cashier one since. And the names still ring in my head every day. Chav, Scav, Low Life, Ned, Underclass, Lowborn. Yes, I might have been lowborn, but somehow I ascended. I reached up high enough to write these words and believe someone might read them. Now I eat well and I always have somewhere decent to stay. My clothes are cheap, but I can afford to replace them. I enjoy the luxury of exercise. I heat my flat in the winter. I have access to art, music, film and books, and they don't feel like a foolishness. When I've been unwell in mind or body, I've sought help and it's been given. I've got better. I've traveled the world several times over and made a living doing what I love, which also happens to be the preserve of people not like me. But now, let's go back to the beginning. One single mother, two stays in foster care, nine primary schools, one sexual abuse child protection inquiry, five high schools, two sexual assaults, one rape, two abortions, my 18th birthday. The Adverse Childhood Experiences Questionnaire asks 10 questions to measure childhood trauma, and each affirmative answer gives you a point. Research has shown that an individual with an ACE score of four or higher is 260% more likely to have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease than someone with a score of zero. 240% more likely to contract hepatitis. 460% more likely to experience depression, and 1,220% more likely to attempt suicide. I scored eight. It might be easier to believe that I was somehow unlucky, that I was a terrible exception, but the truth is the people I grew up with experienced much of the same, a little less sometimes, often a lot more. I am proudly working class, and in the socially mobile hinterland I currently occupy, I miss the sense of community and belonging which my tribe might provide me. But I was never proudly poor. True poverty is all-encompassing, grinding, brutal, and often dehumanizing. I think it goes without saying that the knowing shame of fear and poverty is something I have never missed particularly since I still frequently experience its aftershocks. While my life is unrecognizable today, I find myself unable to reconcile my now with my past. I can best describe this as a vertiginous feeling as belonging to nowhere and to no one, neither back there nor truly here. I've come to believe that being born poor is not simply a matter of economics or situation, 
it is a psychology and an identity all of its own that in me has endured beyond the concept of escape. This book is the outcome of the questions that still disturb my peace. What happened to those towns I lived in? Surely things got better. Have I really escaped? Has my fragmented memory been protecting me all these years or has it inflated year by year this terror? How much of my past is part of who I am today? Thank you. Um, one thing that, that really struck me reading the book, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I enjoyed the book. I found it hugely interesting, <laughs> but enjoyed... James did not enjoy the book. <laughs> <laughs> enjoyed, enjoyed is perhaps almost the wrong word for, yeah. for, for this type of book. Um, I hope people don't enjoy mine, um, I suppose, in the, same, in the same way. But one thing that comes out is, you talk, as you mentioned there, being poor is not simply a matter of economics or situation. It's kind of an identity and a psychology all of its own, which, which kind of endures after your, as you put it, you, you escaped. So, I mean, how did it feel then, then kind of going back? Was it, I, I imagine it would have been fairly traumatic to, in some ways, to actually revisit these places you'd, you, you'd, you'd escaped from, from so, so many years before. I mean, I mean, did you find, did you feel that? Did you find it was, it was very difficult to actually do this in the first place? Um, yeah, it was a, it was kind of a, a terrible idea. <laughs> I think I went to when I decided. To, I mean, I knew I had to write it, so I'd written two novels before. They'd been pretty well received, and I wasn't. I definitely wasn't under any pressure to write about my background. You know, I could have written about middle class people having wheels of brie, and that would have been totally fine with my publisher too. But I really felt compelled to write about this, not just because for my personal reasons, but because what I came to see was more and more divisive dialogue around people experiencing poverty, um, and largely because it was so rarely written by people or created by people who had any sort of lived experience of poverty. Um, they were parachuted in, they came with their own preconceptions of what it means to live in poverty, also created by people who had no lived experience of poverty. And so it felt really important that I had this very small platform and that I could talk very, very honestly about what it was. Um, but, um, but when I decided to do it, I, I decided to start seeing a therapist every two weeks, because um, that's pretty much what I could afford, um, to try and ease me through the process. And she said, this is a terrible idea. Like, by all means, go back, like reconcile yourself with your childhood. Don't put it in a book. And at the time, I was also doing a monthly column for The Pool, um, and uh, so was sort of writing about the process in this like very raw form as well. So it was really difficult. But actually, the idea of going back was difficult. Going back was actually a joy, because what I discovered was these exceptional communities, like responding tenaciously to, to absolute psychological warfare against them from uh, policymakers and from people um, shaping, shaping all of the sort of governance around their, their small communities. So I met up with people who were doing amazing collectivization, and I met with people who just welcomed me warmly. Um, it was it was really for me it was a life changing book because I actually left feeling so proud of my working class roots and you know I carried which I think is really common if you grew up poor carried a lot of shame about it so how I suppose, how had the the places you revisited how how what are the main ways they kind of had changed in the in the intervening years when when you when you went back there 
I mean, what was more interesting actually was, was often where they hadn't changed. So Aberdeen, where I was born, whenever I say I'm from there, people are like, oh, you must, you must have been so rich. <laughs> I was like, no, we were not. Um, and that's because we grew up in Torrey, which was like a, a fishing, sort of an old fishing uh, enclave there. And it hadn't changed at all. I mean, literally, the estate hadn't changed. As soon as I didn't recognize Aberdeen at all, that was all micro cores and yo sushi and like rooftop bars and uh, kombucha <laughs> cafes. <laughs> But, um, but as soon as I walked over the river to Torrey, even though I'd left there when I was four years old, I knew my whole way around it. I knew which bakery to go to for the best buttery, which is like an Aberdonian speciality. I knew my grandma's house and knew where my auntie's house was. Um, and so I was absolutely staggered that somewhere as wealthy as Aberdeen hadn't found a way to trickle down some of that wealth, in, like literally across the river, you know, less than half a mile. Um, and then in other places, what I saw was like, um, not only had the social housing not changed, but it actually got much worse. In North Lanarkshire, they'd introduced this scheme where they put the difficult social housing tenants in blocks with concierges and gates and CCTV. The idea being that there'll be less like um, social social sort of uh, problems if they just lump everyone together, which is the closest thing to ghettoization that I can think of. Um, and um, and also, of course, that many people who had depended on social housing and welfare. Were which for all the difficulties my family had, we did always have access to housing benefit. We could always depend on an emergency loan if something happened with our benefits. We did have access to welfare um, that people suddenly did, couldn't even depend upon those because social, social housing stock had either been like dilapidated to such an extent you wouldn't want to live there or it had been sold off and because universal credit had entirely whipped away that safety net of welfare. Yeah, that's, um, that kind of ties in with some, some things that came up when I was researching my own book, in that in many places like South Wales, say, or the West Midlands, or I was in the, the Northwest as well, the materially we're a wealthier society than we were, say, 30 years ago. But many of the, the jobs are more precarious. There's, uh, there, there aren't the trade unions within, within working class jobs anymore. There aren't those kind of institutions around those jobs. So, you know, even though you may, you may have work, you may be slightly materially more prosperous than you were in the past, it's much more insecure, much more it's a much more fearful existence, it's certainly with, as you mentioned, the, the, the benefit system as well. So do you think, I guess, do you think you'd, you'd have been able to escape today? Were you in the same position? Do you think it would have been easier or more difficult to, 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 to get out of that place you were in your childhood today? I mean, I, I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have. The reason I was able to is partly because, and I say, so I say in every single thing I've ever done, I've said, this is not a social mobility story. Don't you, don't you fucking dare, you know? Because <laughs> basically, um, you know, I was lucky, but also I had, I had resources. So one of the, the main things that kept me afloat was libraries. We spent a lot of time in B&Bs and homeless shelters, but we could always go to a library and it was a warm, free community space where I had resources that gave me insight into another sort of life I might have and the other thing was that I had the dole so the reason that I was able to come to, to London and go to university um, was because I was able to after I'd left school at 15 I was able to go back to college and qualify for job seekers I was studying drama but I told them I was studying for lighting technician and that was that was deemed vocational enough to qualify for a new deal I had a lovely benefit advisor who got me through a loophole um, and she was like we won't tell anyone we'll just say it's that um, 
and I also had housing benefits. I was able to move into a little bedsit um, away from what was a very precarious sort of volatile home life, and that enabled me to focus on my studies. But without those things, I wouldn't. And I don't think I don't think young people have those opportunities now. And when I got to university, there were fees, but they weren't like spiralling and out of control like they are now. You know, so. Did you think the, the education system, I mean, helped or hindered you? Because in my, my personal experience, when I was, I, I kind of screwed up school, had a kind of chaotic, um, uh, had to move out of my house at 15 and move in with my grandmother and that, that screwed up, I kind of screwed up my GCSEs, was like taking drugs and all this stuff. Um, and then I went to college a few years later, so my grand subsidised me going back to college. And then I had one really good teacher who kind of believed in me and then... Uh, it just kind of, things clicked then, uh, but it needed that one person to kind of believe in you. And there was, there was an ex I think you mentioned a similar example in your book. There was, there was someone in the education system who kind of had faith in you, and that seemed to make a, real, a really big difference to your kind of traje trajectory. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about the education system and, and how schooling and, and whatever, how, how that affected where you ended up, and, and could it have gone a different way if you hadn't had that inspirational kind of um, teacher or whatever. Yeah, I mean, for sure it could. So, uh, um, as I said, I went to nine primary schools, five high schools, varied schools, varied teachers. I had some really amazing ones. I had one in Northumberland called um, Hetton Lines Primary School. Uh, when we moved there, which was in the late 80s, the mines had just closed, and so the whole town had been decimated, basically, this whole mining village. Um, but this school was full of tenacious, amazing teachers who just did everything they could to make children's life still amazing and hopeful and full of creativity and education and inspiration. Um, and I went back, actually, when I was writing the book. It was enormously emotional. And um, they just, they're still in the top 20% most deprived um, children in the country, but they just introduced something called poverty proofing, which is about destigmatizing poverty uh, in school by viewing the school day from the eyes of the poorest child and adapting the school day to make sure that no child ever feels that shame of being poor. So if any of you remember the shame of going up with your free school dinner token, um, taking out that sense of shame, if they if there's something that has to that requires resource or money to be done, then they make sure that there's a way that the poor children can still participate and it's not obvious they're being given something for free. Um, so they're still doing astounding work. Um, and then when I did my BTEC, when I finally went back to college after all of the chaos I outline in the book. Um, I had an amazing radical teacher called Ian, Ian Gordon. He was a scouser, a, a, a lefty scouser who ran the drama course. And he was just an astounding man. He didn't just teach us, so it was a performing arts course, but he gave us like contemporary art and music and plays and books. And he was so passionate. And we were kind of, we were the kids who nobody wanted. Like we were deemed to not be bright enough to study academic qualifications. And we were all kind of messy in our own right. And he's just, his his like belief in us is the thing that helped us through that course. Um, and what's nice is I'm still in touch with him and his wife now. He's still enormously radical and political and so many other kids say that it's because of him that they ended up being social workers or teachers or artists um, and then of course there are other teachers who um, feared poor children like it was somehow contagious <laughs> and there was quite a lot of that as well you know like like they didn't like poor kids any more than other people like poor kids just because they were teachers and that was I would say conversely really, really damaging because school is meant to be a place that you go and you feel equal and you have access to opportunity. And to feel that you're denied that even in that space, I think, is, is very damaging, yeah. 
The book is um, the book is also you know a lot of it is, much of it's about your family. Um, so there's and it's you can you can you can read parts of the book and 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 come away with it thinking come away from it thinking, you know this is like your stepfather for example who's always in search of a fresh start. Um, and I, I, I used to know, know lots of people like this. It's, it's constantly this fresh start, and the first time you kind of believe it, and then it's, it's it kind of the same thing again and again. And so you could point to, people could point to that, who are you know, that way politically inclined, and say, well, this is an example of you know, irresponsible kind of parenting. But then the more you kind of, as you progress through the book, you realize that, that even, even someone like your stepfather is, 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 is operating in a world where there are all these kind of different economic forces at play, there's, it's a very insecure, kind of precarious environment. And that kind of shapes the behavior to some extent. So I wonder if you could, yeah, you could talk about how your family kind of, uh, you know, struggled through, how, how they were affected by the kind of economic situation they were, they were in in the first place. And, and whether it is fair for, you know, some people to characterize this as just irresponsible parenting or how much of it is, is based on poverty. Um, so um, I tried to be like as clear as I possibly could in the book that there was no blame to be laid in anyone close to me. It was absolutely a result of structural structural inequality. And for me, so my father came from, my father's American, but he grew up in a jet poverty. Him and his dad used to hunt possum when they were starving. He ended up in a boys' home and then he went straight into the army because that was his only option. Um, uh, my mum came from a long line of fishwives in Aberdeen. Again, complete abject poverty. And my stepfather also came from a long line of abject poverty. Um, so, but and it's it's all of the factors. As I say in the book, like poverty is grinding and inhumane, and it doesn't just cut off your your opportunities. I think it actually erodes at your spirit and your potential. Um, and so these were these were just damaged people, but they weren't making a choice to be irresponsible. They were. Actually actually doing the best they could. I spoke to, um, uh, I can't remember her name, which is very frustrating. I spoke to an LSE psychologist um, about decision making around poverty, because people say that, you know, poor people make terrible decisions, so it's their own fault. And she said that actually psychological research showed that they actually made the most rational decisions possible to them, given all the variables for them. And actually, if she puts, if she does like tests where she puts middle or upper class people with a similar sort of factors, they too will make exactly the same decisions. It's not that people are feckless or irresponsible, it's they're actually making, they're between a rock and a hard place, so there's really only poor decisions to make. And um, so I tried, I tried, I read Hillbilly Elegy before I, before I wrote this or while I was writing it. I don't know, have any of you read it? There's a, there's a section at the beginning where he talks about how a young guy is working at a tile factory with him and he's got a pregnant wife, but he keeps turning up late to work and how that's proof that, that he's just irresponsible and doesn't want to provide for his family. Um, the writer of Hillbilly Elegy is also a working class sort of, you know, done good type guy. Um, and I was just amazed that he didn't factor in any of the many, many psychological factors um, and societal factors that would mean that someone finds it difficult to integrate with that sort of position, like the lack of compassion and sort of nuance. Um, I don't think you can explore it in one book, you know, but I definitely did my best to, to show the full spectrum and nuance of why people behave the way they do. Yeah, that was, um, when, I, when I went back and did, did my book in 2016, it actually changed my behavior. I, I reverted to old, some old behaviors that I'd kind of jettisoned uh, previously. I reverted to some of those behaviors while I was actually working in some of these places. Like, like what? Just so, so, so things to do with health. So I started smoking again. I was, I was drinking, drinking more. I, I started kind of um, knocking about with, with, 
when I when I went home, just just knocking about with people who who smoke a lot of, of pot all the time and um, doing kind of basically. I would, I was, I would, was readopting these negative ha habits to deal with some of the things that, the kind of bleak situation I was, I was in at work. Because at the time I was, I was, um, as you mentioned in the book, you go back and it feels like you're kind of going home in a way, like you're not going to be able to, to reemerge from this place. You're, you're just going back to where you, you belong, and um, yeah, and and, it, and it's like an identity and a psychology. But I find that very interesting in terms of. You, I mean, I put on a stone in weight while I was working at Amazon, yet I'm walking like 10 miles a day uh, because I'm just eating this, this horrible calorie-rich food, drinking all the time, and I it's based exactly on like, an, like a coping back. mechanism. Yeah, Yeah, I did exactly the same. I ate, oh, the whole book's full of me like eating chips and pizza and <laughs> desperately chugging down a can on the bus. So, yeah, that makes yeah. total sense. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's kind of a way of adapting to kind of certain um, surroundings. One, one thing that um, struck me that you mentioned about... Um, it, like imposter syndrome is something that, that so when I went back to these these jobs I felt more at home amongst the people I was working with again than I do at say some literary event where we're kind of sipping wine or whatever it, it felt like I'm back amongst like my people in a way um, do you still have imposter syndrome like as a, as a novelist um, as someone like a member of the bourgeoisie middle class whatever how dare you <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I'm the one drinking kombucha. Okay, um, that's my case. <laughs> but, but you still have that kind of. Um, does that does that stay with you forever? Do you think, or does does or what? Because I'm I'm kind of working that out as well. I mean, I I still suffer from uh, horrific imposter syndrome. Also, will stay like really um, appalling self-esteem issues. Even though, like I, you know, I I think it would be fair to say that my books have been really well received, and I've got no reason to feel that way. Um, and I think I might do. Someone wrote to me and they said, "I'm going to send this to my mum because she's felt this way for her whole life. She's in her 60s now, and she still feels this way." Um, and I think that's. I suppose I've stopped feeling quite so terrible about it since I stopped trying to fit in and pretend. I realized that a lot of what I was doing for like the last 20 years in order to make my way through this world, which was not at all like my world, was to, to learn to pass, you know, to learn to soften off my edges. But, you know, really acting, like basically living almost like undercover for 20 years. I can totally hold my own at a, a fancy literary party, though honestly you don't want to because they're really boring. They're, I'd much rather be down Peggy's having uh, two pound doubles to be honest but um, but so there is an and so as soon as I for one a big process of this was taking away the idea that there was something bad about where I come from or who I implicitly was and um, and just learning to be like I you know I don't have any truck now with trying to adapt or change and I'm I'm totally with you I often would be much more comfortable doing the waitress <laughs> at those dinners than the you know than the, the sitting around having polite god-awful boring conversations so <laughs> definitely um why do you think the why do you think the kind of cl political climate in britain's become so i mean i'm going to go political now I, why do you think it's become so much more almost inhospitable for the poor in terms of i mean the book's called lowborn you talk about there's you know the, the different names given to the poor you know chavs um Scav, yeah life, Ned. <laughs> i mean Chav in particular is, is something that's been the last kind of 15 years. Um, why, why, why has this happened? Why, why has it become, why have shows like Jeremy Kyle, why are the poor depicted constantly in this way nowadays? Whereas, I mean, they've never had it, the poor have never had it easy, but 
just before kind of we were born, it seemed before the Thatcher kind of revolution and stuff, it seemed like there was there was a kind of gradual material progress in terms of the, the poor. There was you could be working class and have a certain degree of self-respect. There were working class characters in novels, in films. And now it seems like they're just figures of fun. Why, why do you think this has happened? Um, I think I, I've thought about this a lot, actually, because it felt it, important for me to understand how we got to a stage where it was such a divisive narrative. Partly, I think it's what I said, which is that a lot of so publishing is very middle class, incredibly middle class. It's also run by unpaid internships and connections, and that means it's ve and it's based in London, so it's very very hard to move your way up through publishing. And obviously, they're the people, editors and agents are the people who decide what we end up reading on our bookshelves um, and they tend to want things that reflect their own experience um, and that I think goes for all of the arts, theatre and film and TV. Um, again I think that the absence of the dole is a huge thing. Um, Billy Bragg said recently that he thinks that like young people not having the dole now means that loads of artists never get the chance to make anything, you know, like him, A.L. Kennedy, um, me, <laughs> I just put myself with Billy Bragg and A.L. Kennedy, <laughs> um, but, um, but um, you know, like we were able to, to, we were able to like think about doing something more creative because we had access to a welfare system that helped us a little bit while we were able to do that. Um, the other reason is that I think that, that in many ways we've become like a much more progressive society, you know, so, um, so a lot of, so for instance, it would never be acceptable in the workplace now to make a racist or a homophobic joke, but classism still goes unchecked. I've seen it done a thousand times. I sat in a, I used to work for charities before as a writer, and I sat there and someone got off the phone, they went, oh, they sound like the sort of person who lives on a council estate. <laughs> <laughs> And what's amazing is that I did not challenge them. Like I just, I just sat there furious and silent because I didn't feel, because I was like, oh, maybe I'm being sensitive. And so I think the, the issue is that actually it's one of the very few things left that people can use as an easy punchline, you know? Um, so I think there's loads, of, and you know, the other reason, and a big one I think, is that the Tories have really peddled an idea of the feckless, um, unemployed, like basically scavenger, um, you know, benefits, uh, benefits uh, scavs so that they can so that they can basically justify their austerity measures. Um, they've really really pushed that idea that actually poor people are lazy and deserve to be even poorer, um, and so that's become like a sort of mainstream idea. I think. Do you think there's do you think there's um, a political kind of solution to to this stuff? Because I mean, the the solution that is touted typically is social mobility. So the last kind of politicians of all parties, the last kind of several decades it's it's not really about making life easier for the poor it's about one or two people escaping so we're kind of products of social mobility so in that respect where we've succeeded but then those places you've left or we've left you go back there and it's uh there are you know there are there are very talented people who through several strokes of bad luck didn't manage to escape or whatever so, I mean, how do you think, do you think politics should just be a focus on social mobility? I would guess not. It, would, it should be a focus on kind of, um, you know, even if you're not kind of academically gifted, even if you, even if you are, are working in kind of a, a manual job or something, you deserve as much self-respect and dignity as someone who's a, you know, university professor or something. I mean, do you think, do you think that, but do you think there's any realistic chance of that kind of politics of class making any inroads today? Or is, or is that something of the past? I mean, I've become fond of saying that Britain's just like a bonfire and we're just toasting our marshmallows on it at this stage, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't know about the viability. What I did realise, I mean, I, I get asked this question a lot when I do panels, and the truth is that 
I don't really have any more answers than most people, but what I did see was that actually people living in those communities, even people who aren't academics, perhaps especially people who are not academics, should have agency decide, to decide what happens in their communities. Um, I met so many people in those local communities, completely normal people, who knew exactly what needed to be done, why, things, why certain things wouldn't work, why certain things would, what the community need, how they needed it to be delivered. Um, I met up with some social workers who I think, I think social workers are like real heroes and they'd worked in the industry for 20 years but they told me that they were moving all their signposting online um, and they said that they and I said but what about you know people who don't have computers or you know the most vulnerable who don't have wi-fi and they said oh they'll go to a library and I was like but I really I don't think they will first of all second of all, all the libraries are closing third of all it's not librarians jobs to become social worker signposts and if they'd spoken to and it, actually, I think it wasn't those women's fault. It was it was from higher up. But if they'd gone out to anyone in the community who used social working um, services, they would have been able to say, this isn't going to work for these five reasons. And so what I kind of realised was that actually it was a lack of a lack of agency um, and also a lack of respect for those communities. The idea that they're so stupid that they don't know what <laughs> you know they don't know what's happening in their computer and they need to be like sort of managed around like a sort of herd of herd of unintelligent sheep. Um, and that's kind of what I came to think is like one of the fundamental problems with the disconnect between Westminster and those communities. Yeah, I mean. One one thing that that came out in in my work, when particularly in say former industrial communities, was you had places where at one time there was at least a kind of there was a kind of modicum of there was a, there was a degree of of working working class democracy, if you like. So through the trade union movement, through say even social clubs, through there was there was self organisation for working class people. So. There was socialism through which you could explain why these things were happening to your community, why these things were happening in the world. And th then there were the kind of the trade unions and things you could join and you could at least exert some pressure to try and change things. Whereas today, you go back to say Ebervale or Merthyr Tidville or something, you've got a situation where the, the places these towns have been declining for many years, uh, yet there's, people kind of are confused. They, they don't know why this is happening, why, why the high street has been destroyed and there's now, it's, you know, it's all charity shops, pawnbrokers, etc. Um, you know, betting shops, uh, you know, Bright House, all these kind of rip-off stores. And they have no real way of, of explaining why this has happened. And then you get politicians like Donald Trump, like Nigel Farage, come in and point the blame at migrants, point the blame at kind of people on on welfare so I mean do you think that this is I mean this is another kind of political question do you think that I mean my friends don't vote at home my, my brothers and my sister don't vote my my friend they voted for brexit but apart from that they they don't really vote um, do you think that kind of I don't know if it's the same for when you went back were the, were the people you spoke with just completely politically disenfranchised or were they were they completely hopeless in that respect or was there this like anti-establishment thing that we that we hear about all the time now or I mean, it really varied. What I will say is that I felt a massive sense of dislocation, disenfranchisement from those communities. And why on earth would they not feel that way? You know, when like their whole high street's been eroded and no one can tell them why and they can't see any reason for it. Um, Great Yarmouth, which is where I spent my teens, was one of the biggest voters for Brexit. And um, everything is closed down there. I mean, there's so few shops left open. There's like re repossession signs in all the shop windows. But there's a brand new, big, shiny UKIP building right in the 
centre of town. Um, and they, for the first time in many, many years, now have a Tory local government. Um, and that, I think, is an example of where people have basically, you know, the, the story is old as time, you know. They've swept in and people are hurting and they've said, well, look, this is the reason and we will help you. And whether or not that's true, like, it's very, very hard if no one's given you any other options to, to, to sort of disavow that or, or, you know, and also, you know, if if Labour were there doing their job properly, <laughs> which is another whole thing, I think. But, you know, but if, if they were in that community really working hard to explain why things were happening, then UKIP might not be able to get the hold that they had. Um, so, so, and so I saw a lot of that, but I also saw a lot of, um, like, less political but more sort of grassroots work so they stopped being political but they were like right we're just going to do this ourselves so uh, a lot of independent food banks a man who set up um, a service for the children of addicts in North Lanarkshire where there's a huge problem where he just knew there was going to be a cyclical generational issue there and so he set up a service to help those kids now um, another woman who'd been a snack bar owner she'd owned like a little snack bar van um, and had had cancer couldn't work anymore and decided she was going to do something. So she set up a school uniform bank in North Lanarkshire. Started with one kid who needed a winter coat. And by the end of the year, she'd got 500 school uniforms for all the kids in the community just by banding together. That and they're not rich communities at all, you know. It's normal people taking the little resource they have and putting it into things. So I saw a lot of that as well, which I guess is like a... The, an antithesis of politics, you know, just accepting actually that sort of accountability in your local community. The issue is that A, they shouldn't have to fill the welfare gaps and B, I don't know how sustainable that is, you know, to have those sort of those services being provided by by local people just doing their best. It's like the big society, do it yourself because we don't care. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so how, were you, how did you feel like you were received by say, people in those communities when you went back? Because I, I, I think you wrote that you were kind of, uh, you thought they, you were worried they might be wary or, or sometimes they, they were wary. Because I was worried about this going back to, to working some of these jobs with the people I, I, I meet be kind of, see me as an imposter. But it wasn't, that wasn't the case at all. It was mainly middle class people who'd never done that work themselves telling me that um, going back to the jobs I'd done previously, I'd be the imposter. Um, I just wondered how, how yeah, did, did, you, did, did people treat you with suspicion or were they very welcoming typically and, and, and warm? Because that was the impression that, you know, you went back to your old, to your old house, one of your old homes and people were wary initially, but they were typically very friendly and, um, and interested to tell you about their story. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I expected a certain amount of, um, you know, sort of scepticism, I guess. I also say that a lot of the communities I grew up in were really violent, you know, like I talk about how you could never walk down the street in Coat Bridge without someone saying, oh, hen, you want your hole kicked? Like, for no reason, you know, I was just eating my crisps. <laughs> like, so that was, that was, sort of, that just sort of permeate those communities. But actually, when I went back, um, people were... Um, so kind and welcoming. Not always, I've got to say, but as soon as I said I grew up in Green End Estate or I grew up in the Barracks Estate, they knew exactly what that meant and they just, it was like an instant, like, sort of shorthand for belonging, I guess. Um, and then they were so kind and welcoming and warm. And also, they want to be heard, you know? They want their stories to be told and no one's listening to them. So they've got really important things to say, um, but nobody is actually giving them the time to listen. So when I rocked up with my little dictaphone and my frankly, slightly bumbling form of journalism, <laughs> um, um, spilling the coffee and, you know, making three bad jokes before I even got started, um, puts people right at ease. Um, they, they just, they were really just 
welcoming and warm and for me that was that was really moving because I'd felt so removed from those communities um yeah so, so I mean I guess I guess that's the thing that I'd found was that even though my family maybe didn't have that sense of community because we moved around so much and we were very isolated those communities are there and they're a real asset in those in those poorer towns yeah I mean you you, you mentioned yeah you there were aspects of kind of Working class community that you do that you did miss. Um, what what could you just explain a bit more about that? Like what 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 did you miss? Say compared to, I mean community. I mean we have had a quite a strong community if you like back home, but it's um, then social mobility kind of takes you lose that in a way because you you kind of become like deracinated and you have to move away. Um, what specifically did you miss about that that kind of sense of community? Because. Community seems to be something that is missing in many people's lives today, in, in the working class at least, where they feel this sense of kind of discombobulation, where those old structures have been destroyed. Um, what is it you miss about the, the kind of those kind of old communities? Yeah. I mean, I think, so I say, so in Aberdeen, my whole family grew up there for decades and decades. And like, I hadn't realized until I went back, because, you know, everything was so much smaller once I went back, that we all lived within like 25 minutes of each other, all my aunties and my grandma. And, you know, I could walk down the street and I could say, oh, I'm part of the Ryans. And they'd be like, oh, you're a Ryan. I know Chrissy. I went to school with her. That sense of connectedness, I think, like, like literally having a whole community on your side and having your back and a sense of a sense of history and belonging, I guess. Um, and I definitely, I, I cut myself off from all of that when I decided to leave, you know. I think you make other forms of community. Like I definitely, um, I made like a, a, a big sort of circle of, I made a, a big circle of queer friends, for instance, and they became very much community, often because they'd also been for various reasons expelled from their community. Um, but um, but I do think it's a, a real issue. I will also say, though, that without, without having left Aberdeen and not having grown up in that sort of really like um, long, long running family sort of dynasty, or without having grown up in the same estate, that it was sort of the outsiderness that actually enabled me to, um, to to move away. You know, because I know some a lot of the research says that one of the very few positives for people from um, like sort of straight and socioeconomic situations is that sense of community. But because I didn't have that, I you know there was literally no other where for me to go but somewhere else. So. You kind of burned your boats, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I call it scorching the earth in the book, but yeah. <laughs> did, did you feel like you had to cut yourself off from some people from your kind of previous life in a way? Because I, I did, to some extent, have to kind of cut some people out because it was encouraging me to do destructive behaviours, basically, and I wouldn't have actually progressed through, say, education and stuff if I had carried on, like, hanging around with certain people and stuff. So I had to kind of draw some kind of, like, soft line uh, between that life and then the life I wanted. I mean, did you did you feel you had to do that at all? Yeah, I mean, I say in the book that I, I started running and I never looked back, and that's pretty much accurate, and I regret that massively, actually. And if anything, what I learned from the book was that I have an enormous debt to pay back to those communities, that I am trying to think about how I can start paying back, um, because actually I feel I feel profoundly guilty about about doing it. I did it for good reasons, you know, and I actually think it was the only way that I could survive and thrived. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally just basically denied my whole, you know, my first 18 years just didn't exist really. Um, and that was the only way that I could sort of forge this new life. 
Is there anything else you... I've kind of exhausted my, my questions. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about from the book or, or read from the book um, before we have a break and then go into the Q&A? No, I mean, not really. I'm looking forward to all of your... I feel like we're going to get some really good political questions in this crowd. <laughs> and so I look forward to your questions um, and maybe... We're not too early, are we? No, we're just, yeah. we're just a few minutes, few minutes before break anyway. So if we break <laughs> now for 15 minutes and then, then come out for the Q&A. Yep. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, both of you, thanks for that. That was fantastic. I can't think of a better way to spend Sunday afternoon. You guys are great. Um, one observation, one question. Observation, I was quite surprised that neither of, in, in your account of poverty as it stands today, as it's played out in, in our lifetimes, um, neither of you mentioned neoliberalism, which is actually the umbrella account for why things are the way they are. It's, well, it's an account, um, maybe not the account, but it's certainly very helpful, I think, in understanding these things. I was surprised it didn't come up. The other thing I wanted to ask you was, Kerry, you mentioned um, discrimination against working class people and the, the woman who you were working with who said, God, she sounded like she came from a council estate. It was a man. A man. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay. Um, the person who said, she said, they sounded like they came from a council estate, and that being a kind of discrimination against working class people being routine and unchallenged, um, it's also the one form of discrimination that isn't included in legislation. That may be because it's very difficult to actually create definitions for it. So, general question, how do we tackle discrimination against the working class in this country? Because it is real. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. It happens. But we don't have a mechanism for talking about it. And a lot of the time it ends up being, oh, well, they're just not quite the right fit. There's something culturally wrong with them, they're not quite right, there's something wrong with their personality, yada yada, um, when actually it's class discrimination. What can we do about that, given that there's a lack of statutory framework? Um, I think, um, it's a fascinating question by the way, um, I think I basically worked out that for me personally it's two things, one it's always always challenging it and the same way I would if someone said something racist or homophobic or sexist, you know it, that, that sense of outrage I think has disappeared from the idea that you should not malign people from poorer working class backgrounds, you know, it has become like an easy punchline. Um, and then the other thing I think is if you're working class and you self-identify as working class, that's a whole other thorny issue I know, but if you self-identify as working class and you're not anymore in a tradi traditional working class sort of opportunity, um, position rather, tell people. I did a, an event recently, a, a fancy one for women in marketing, and um, it was very swish, <laughs> and they had me on to talk about like opportunities for working class people, and the lovely woman next to me um, did this beautiful, very, very like tearful confession about the fact she grew up in council estates and she's like you all know me and you'd never guess this but this is how I grew up and she was crying and shaking as she admitted that to her to her peers and colleagues um, and I think that it's only by being really upfront about where we come from and not passing that people 
that, that, that it creates like a different sort of culture, you know, because it's hidden, it's completely hidden. So we have to be really upfront about where we come from and then more outraged about people maligning, maligning people from our own community, I think. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was gonna actually just uh, make a point about the neoliberal uh, comment. I mean, I just, I know what you mean, but I just don't use that personally because I try not to try to avoid get, getting into kind of abstractions and talking about. Um, I think class war is a is a better kind of um, descriptor of, of what's gone on rather than, than than giving it kind of this abstract um, thing. So that's that's just why it, why I haven't talked about it. But I, I know what you mean in terms of like the destruction of the trade unions, um, the kind of disenfranchisement of of working class democracy, which we talked about um, earlier on. I think that's 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 had a massive impact on. Um, also on how working class people are portrayed, um, because when there's, there is, isn't, being working class today is something which you're kind of acted on in the world, rather than having the power to actually act, on the, act in the world, um, in many instances, and that's, that's, that's through deliberate kind of political choices to kind of hobble the trade union movement, um, and the knock-on effect of that has been, yeah, the, the, the loss of those kind of institutional affiliations that working class people used to have. Um, so yeah, I prefer to talk about that than give it just the, just the label of neoliberalism. Anyway. Oh, hi, I've got um, a question for both of you, but especially to Kerry because of um, your background, because you've been in the working class and the, mid, sort of the middle class world. And I was wondering, like honestly, hand on heart, what do you think the middle class think of the poor? <laughs> um, get comfortable, guys. <laughs> um, what I was, what I will say is that actually, like, um, and I, I feel like it's important to say this. Amazingly, guys, there's not a lot of money in writing working class books. <laughs> so I earn probably as much as I did when I worked for call centres, um, which means that I don't feel totally fully part of the middle class. But I do have a lot of friends who are comfortably middle class. Honestly, I think, um, you know, I wrote, when I was writing the book, I wrote a piece about how one of the reasons that I had to start challenging things is because that I was at dinner parties with people who had, like, loads of recycling bills, bins and, like, you know, higher welfare meat and who signed all the amnesty petitions. And then we talk about working class people in, like, the worst terms or not even talk, just, like, swerve out of the way with a guy in a, you know, the guy in the tracksuit carrying his bag of tins and look at me like, oh, God. And I'll be like, don't look at me like that. I'm with him, you know. Um, and so it was about sort of drawing those lines i think it's i think largely it's a sense of understanding like you can't i think like it, unless people go out of their way to really seek out material that depicts working class experience in all of its nuance they can't be blamed for having that very sort of top level view that they're just constantly constantly fed um but um but i do i mean i hope that a lot of the work that me and James are trying to do is trying to reveal all the complexity and the nuances. Um, but I think largely it comes from a, a place of, of misunderstanding about, about what it means to be poor and what it means to be working class. One thing I guess that, that annoys me nowadays is, is how the working class thing has become like an identity that certain politicians will use to then uh, make life worse for working class people. So watching the Tory uh, leadership, has, whatever they're doing now, the videos, this, all this crap, yeah. Sajid Javid talking about, you know, his background. I was, it's just an identity. I came from this 
this, this ordinary background. David Davis used to always bang on about how he's from a council estate, therefore he somehow had the, a better insight into, into the poor, even though this was like 40, 50 years ago. Um, it's just this kind, of, this kind of kitsch kind of identity, this kind of thing someone uses, you know, um, not based on their economic situation now, but based on just this superficial thing from the past to then give to, to then give the working class today another another kind of kicking and the the, the kind of left does something which annoys me as well which is it, it, it kind of likes working class people when they're on the way down rather than when they're on the on the way up so it can patronize them and pat them on the head and say you know poor fellow poor 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 fellow um um and and like, I never wanted to, I never saw myself as a victim. I never wanted to kind of, I never do the like woe is me uh, thing now to kind of advance my career. You know, I, I'm such a victim. I had this poor, like I hate that stuff. I hate talking about that stuff. Because you, uh, my friends are the same. They had a sense of working class pride. It's uh, you don't want to see yourself as a victim. You want to, you want to feel empowered in some way. And as a culture, we kind of, we, we, we now tend to kind of, we, we kind of expect someone to be to, to identify as a victim if they've had a hard life and that's not always the case it's 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 not always empowering to identify as a victim even if you are a victim of the kind of the social system and i think um the kind of the the middle class left can kind of patronize working class people um in that way sometimes oh hi first i want to say thank you kerry because i think your book is one of the very rare testimonies of working class voice now i was born a long time before you. I think it's about, I don't know, 30 years. But can I say, a lot of your experience is mine. It was great having somebody else who'd been to lots of school. Now, the number of white working class female testimonies in this country are dire. I learned that I was worth something from reading James Baldwin before I went to college, who was a black working class man in America. And what we need is more. What you're doing is really important because you're speaking your voice and you're not giving up your identity, you're adding to it. When I got my degree and my doctorate, I didn't give up my culture. I enriched it by economic security. And that's what I'd like to say to James. I think we should challenge the whole question of social mobility. It's economic mobility. It's having the money to buy the books. I, like you, went back and saw the libraries where I learned, despite teachers who had me writing essays on cleaning cookers, my cookers filthy, <laughs> but, but those libraries are closed. Yeah. And if you don't have that, and thank you for what you said, I've been teaching all my life and I went into teaching because of how my friends were treated because they answered back whereas I took it. And what your book shows is your incredible agency and resistance. And why should you have an imposter syndrome when you've got so much more? Look what you have achieved. You've got us all sitting here talking about an issue that doesn't even usually get spoken. It's the relation that does not speak its name. And yet it's the most significant in this country for educational underachievement in any area. And if you can't read, how can you have a life? But thank you very, very much, Kerry and James. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was really fascinated by the comment that you made about schools taking the perspective of the poorest child. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that from your own experiences. I'm a teacher, and I think that it would be a really 
Um, I, I just thought that that was a fantastic way to think about it, and I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on what we can do to, to make children's experiences better. Sure. Um, so that, that's actually set up by a charity called um, Children Northeast. They, they specifically tackle poverty in the Northeast. God knows it's needed there. And it started because they gave, um, they gave a thousand kids in the Northeast uh, disposable cameras and asked them to take pictures of what poverty looked like in their local community. Um, they had 14,000 pictures returned and um, almost overwhelmingly what they discovered that the place where kids feel most aware of being poor is at school and um, and so they looked for it so they've introduced this auditing process and it's literally viewing the school day from the eyes of the poorest kids so whether that's not being able to afford your bus fare to the swimming lessons or your coke and crisps after your swimming lesson or what they discovered in my old school was that they were having issues with water bottles so branded water bottles like we're totally defining the haves and have nots and the kids who came I remember vividly coming with my packed lunch with a daddy's brown sauce bottle full of milk <laughs> and just feeling abjectly ashamed you know like I'd do anything to try and hide that you know for all the things that it said um, or you know like like anything that takes extra resource or also parent parent sort of interaction like I think you know World Book Day is a wonderful thing and how glorious to see all the kids dress up some kids don't some parents don't have the capacity a to buy those costumes b to get their stuff together to be able to do it you know my mum suffered from really extreme mental health problems she wasn't always going to be able to make me an Easter bonnet but when every other kid in the school has an Easter bonnet like that just absolutely like exposes you for all the the ways in which you feel different so I think it's just a case about looking where poorer children can be othered. I think in London, I can't imagine how much harder it is because the poverty line is so is so severe. My uh, my best friend's a head teacher at a nursery school in Peckham, and she faces that every day. And she's actually going. We're presenting at the conference in Southwark actually about poverty proofing to try and get it rolled out in London. Um, but it's really about trying to view it through the lens of a kid who will not have all the things that you would expect a kid to have, you know? Take it from the, the perspective of the worst off kid with a most chaotic home life, rather than the kid who you'd hope to have all those things. Um, can I also say as well, something else that I've completely realized by writing that book is that I think being a really good teacher is one of the most amazing and radical things you can do for poor kids. So I think you guys are heroes. It's really exceptional. <laughs> Uh, what is the most absurd example the two of you have seen of someone who's blatantly middle class claiming to be working class? I suppose like, um, uh, yeah, I can't really think of anything like too overt. I guess actually I'll tell you, there's a, I won't say who because she's actually, I will say there's a very nice person as, as they all tend to be. But when I was writing my poll columns for the first time and so I was, you know, I was really talking about class like every single month and getting a lot of response about it. A director from one of the biggest literary festivals in the country contacted me and said, my grandma and grandma worked in manual labor but my mum and dad were lecturers and I have working class sensibilities. Does, does that mean I'm working class or not? <laughs> and I was like, I am, I am not fucking answering that. Like, you can 
you can absolutely just get on with that yourself. Um, and that was that was probably an example of her like reaching, I think, for and I can kind of see it, you know, like she doesn't want to believe that she's like middle class or privileged. But obviously the issue is if you don't acknowledge your privilege, then you don't acknowledge all the ways that you reinforce and contribute to an, an equal structure. Um, that's probably my best example. <laughs> I, I mean, there's. I just go back to the point I made about there's people people treating being working class as like an affectation when they're like comp company directors or something. Or also, you have this thing in in the media where you have like contrarians and UKIP types who uh, do the thing where you know. If, if you're not kind of drinking uh, a six-pack of beer every night, smoking yourself to death and, and beating your wife, you're not authentically working class. And you're, uh, you're, 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 looking you're a liberal elite uh, looking down on the working class. So there's, people play around with this thing, in a, in a very, this identity, in a very uh, negative way uh, sometimes, I think. First of all, thank you for a very interesting talk. I'd just like to know, do you think that when a political commentator or protesters who are more right-leaning and working class, do you think they're more readily dismissed than when those same opinions are given by a more middle-class protester or a more middle-class writer? Sorry, could you, like, for, do, do I think... Uh... Do you think that um, when, say, a working-class writer or a working-class protest movement is more right-leaning, that those people's views are more readily dismissed than when those same views are given by a more middle-class or but more well-known middle-class writer or middle-class protest movement. So you mean if, if you're working class but you have right-leaning views, are they more readily dismissed? Is yes, more readily dismissed than a middle-class person with those same views. Um, I don't know. I mean, I actually, I think, unfortunately, it might give you, give you more credence, you know, because, because actually I think of the right, the, right, right, the right wing as like the enemy of the working classes, so it's almost like getting someone who you're in direct opposition to to endorse your views. Um, I think generally, if you're working class, you have to work twice as hard to have your view taken seriously and to be heard. Um, but, um, but in that case, I think that's unfortunately one of the few cases where, where it just adds. I recently got asked to write for a, a centre-right newspaper, and I said I wouldn't because I knew that, can you imagine? <laughs> They pay super well, by the way, guys. Much better than the Guardian. Um, and um, and and, they, and I and I thought about it for ages because you know I'm not rich and I need to pay my rent. And um, and in the end, I responded and I said, actually, I'm really uncomfortable with a lot of your content, which is very far right, and I don't wish to lend my voice to legitimise a platform which has right wing content. Um, and um, that's the danger, I think. You know, like by having that singular voice, it means that you legitimise all of the other stuff that people are saying. With no, with no understanding of that background. Yeah, I mean, I think any, wherever you are on the political spectrum, I think if you're coming from a working class perspective, it's much harder to get your voice heard. I think, um, on the one hand, yeah, some in, in say, in say, like a middle middle class liberal left circles, yeah, you'll be dismissed as an idiot. I think if you're working class and you don't have the correct views, that can happen certainly. Um, but then I would also agree with with Kerry that I think. The, the policies of the right are uh, actively harmful to, to working class communities very often. So, um, yeah, I, I tend to kind of concur with what Kerry said, really, on that. <laughs> Basically. Uh, yeah, um, so it's a slightly less political one, maybe, a bit more personal. Um, I wanted to ask about, you mentioned about feelings of shame, and I'm quite interested in that kind of idea, and that, those feelings, and I wondered if, you could talk a bit about how you think that that's played out in 
some of the decisions that you've made or situations you've been in, and also whether there's a difference between male-female experience in that way. Um, I, I definitely, it's such an interesting question by the way, I definitely think there's a difference in male or female. I mean I think it's, it's, it's interesting because I've done quite a lot of events with Darren McGarvey recently who wrote um, Poverty Safari and I think that men have a different sort of experience of shame about different things but definitely my experience as a working class woman, especially one who experienced sexual violence, was that I should definitely shut up. You know, I should be as small as possible, I should take up as little space as possible, I should be quiet, I should apologize all the time I should please there's a reason I'm so nice and that's totally because I've been conditioned to please fucking everybody <laughs> which is which is I guess like a double-edged sword um, so I really think that's a huge difference for me what I realized when I wrote this book was even though I've actually been really privileged to be able to speak out in a way that many of my peers or women from my background haven't that I had been so silent about so many things that had happened to me and it created the sense of shame you know like I think where there's silence there's the sense that you have done something wrong and actually speaking out about these things so for instance um abortions I kind of written about quite frequently because it was a, a quite fundamental experience in my life but the rape I had never spoken about at all um, and actually just speaking about that really was like so liberating because it totally removed that sense of shame and we don't I mean I do loads of events like this and first of all it shouldn't be radical for a woman to sit on stage and say she's been raped because God knows it happens enough but also you don't need to do a, a straw poll a straw poll in a room to find out how many women have experienced sexual violence and I think that culture of like shame and silence is insidious in inner sort of culture and so it's really really important to if you feel able to like it's no one's responsibility but if you feel able to speak out about it yeah i mean speaking in terms of like say the the role of men in in the the contemporary wor working world or contemporary working class i mean one thing that, that i noticed going back um and doing the book in 2016 was there was kind of a, a male working class identity crisis to some extent um, based around the lack of meaningful work. So um, when I was in the town of Rugeley in the West Midlands, a uh, former miner, former collier, he said to me, he said, this is where Amazon, the Amazon warehouse was, and he said he'd speak to people around the town and he'd ask them what they're doing for work. And they would say, I only work at Amazon. I only work at Amazon. I only work in Argos. I only work in Tesco. And he said, I would have never said, I own, I'm only a coal miner, because that's what you were and you were proud of it. And there's, there was very much a sense of these kind of uh, listless kind of men in these communities who didn't have the meaning um, through, didn't find meaning through their work anymore, but there was still the kind of residual memory of their fathers and grandfathers who did have this, who, who did find meaning through a job, even a very unpleasant job such as coal mining. So you, you don't need to romanticize going underground in an environment where you could be killed, where you could, could, could be seriously injured. Um, yet they still had some sense, drew some sense of, of meaning from that. Um, and much of the many contemporary jobs, you just didn't have that. And speaking as a man and speaking as, as kind of the, 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 it was it was predominantly men I interacted with there. Um, that that there is that kind of identity crisis um, to some extent around what a kind of what a, what a man's role in the world is, but particularly what a kind of working class man's uh, role in the world is when so much of the identity in the recent past was attached to kind of meaningful work, making things, producing things at work. Um, whereas uh, nowadays governments have tried to kind of uh, give people, you know, you create your identity through what you consume. 
Um, but it's not really enough. It's um, governments have kind of, successive governments have tried to kind of um, say that, you know, oh, you, your identity is bound up with just what you buy. But many people want something more meaningful than that. And without many of those old institutions like religion, politics, um, and meaningful work, people feel kind of lost in, in, in many respects. And I think that hits the working class people harder because you're in a more insecure, precarious environment to begin with. Um, hey guys, thank you so much for today. Um, having read both your books, uh, apart from the brilliant writing uh, of them both, what was most striking to me was just how bleak uh, the situations and the people and the communities that you describe um, in both the books. And so I was wondering, given how bleak uh, both books are, and I suppose that's based Please on put that on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not with James, uh, James's book. Um, given how bleak they both are, and I suspect that's because they're both based on reality rather than sort of gushing overhyped narratives. I was wondering, when you look forward to the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years' time, are there any grounds you have for optimism? Are there any green shoots uh, you, 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 know, you, you, you can see in terms of feeling hopeful about the future, particularly given how crap our politicians are at the moment? <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um, I, think, um, I think for me, probably, what I, I saw loads of grassroots activism in those communities directly in response to um, austerity measures. And so I feel like that was the most hopeful thing that I saw. I saw people, and I also, I've got to say, I saw a lot of people returning to their communities at like mine and James' age, mine and James's age, with loads of resources and loads of experience and looking for ways to implement them to make the communities better. So that's, that's kind of my, my greatest hope. Um, I mean, it's, it is bleak. I mean, you just, you just can't deny it. Actually, funnily enough, um, a woman came to an event I did in Norwich and held up the, the bleak picture that um, James did of a review of my book and he had a bleak picture of Great Yarmouth and she held it up and she went, this is a very bad picture of Great Yarmouth. <laughs> it was during the Q&A and I was like, I'm sorry, but you can't deny there's like high rates of teenage pregnancy and high rates of unemployment. But um, I mean, it is bleak. But I think what, and like, because I'm kind of an optimism, what I hope is that um, when those communities are really put under the cosh, that they find ways to survive, just as they always have, and that they collectivize. There's a lot of intelligence and spirit and tenacity there, and a lot of pride in where they come from. And so I hope women like that woman who took me and James to task um, is in that community, like trying her best to, to, to raise it up. Yeah, and, and, and there's always, you know, within those communities, so, there's always, there are always people doing positive work. So when I went to uh, South Wales recently, there was this, um, you know, they, there's a, there's a Blano Gwent, there's like, there's like one in six people on prescriptions for antidepressants in 2013. It's, and a lot of this goes back to like work, like a lack of work. But there's, then I went to this place called the Phoenix Project where you've got the, this is like a drop-in center for mental people with mental health problems to talk about their mental health. And catering to a demographic which typically has been very bad at talking about mental health, so, so older working class men um, who are turning up to this, to this place, um, uh, turning up regularly to, to, to talk about th mental health issues they're having. Um, it's like a voluntary project. Um, some people, it's run by people who've had mental health problems themselves. Um, and you, I met people there whose lives have been saved by this, by this project, and it's like a grassroots thing. Um, so, on the one hand, I think there aren't any green shoots. I think it's everything's bad. I think if we don't die in nuclear war um, with Iran or North Korea or something, then Trump's going to kill us. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's pretty bleak with Brexit and all this stuff. 
but at the same time, it doesn't mean there aren't positive things going on, doesn't mean we can't enjoy ourselves, um, etc. <laughs> Um, I'd also add the fact that me and James are even here with published books by mainstream publishers say something, um, you know, like they were both well received, they've been read by people, whether people will actually change is another thing, but even being at the point where you've got people with lived experience of poverty writing mainstream books that are actually going into the mainstream press and being reviewed is a really big step in the right direction, I think. Even if it, I had a Tory MP email me and said the book really made him think. So <laughs> <laughs> imagine a Tory thinking. Um, so we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. But the point is that at least it's a step in the right direction, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'd just like to. Uh, it's not a quick, quick statement. I'd like to thank you both for great books. I have been selling books in Newham, which is a working class area for the last 40 years. If you had told me three or four years ago that I would have bins in the shop collecting for period poverty, for, um, for um, secondary schools, I've been working with Jack Munro to get her book out to all the Trussell Trusts, collecting tins, I wouldn't have believed you. And I, I mean, we are very proud to do that, but wow, where a way to go. Um, so, oh, we've got one more question. I think we'll make that one the last one, and then uh, we'll have to wrap up. Yeah, just going back to a previous answer you gave um, about not wanting to write for a, a right-leaning journal. I mean, isn't that the very place where you should be writing? Because there's a lot of criticism in America, particularly of the Democrat, um, Democratic politicians, where they, for example, they refuse to go on Fox News. And I would argue that's the very place they should be. It's, it's, it's rather than talking to maybe the converted, that, that to have influence, you need to engage with people that don't agree with you rather than those that you do. So um, I think that's where you should be. Um, I also, as I've been, I, I do agree with you, and I did actually initially agree, and then I read, I read some of their their articles, but it's in, the, you know, I mean, it was, it's, um, it for me, it was too far right, and it was too, I didn't want my name alongside the people who were writing for them and the views that they were purporting, in the same way that I wouldn't go to a national front, um, you know, demo to chat to people just because I want to change hearts and minds. Yeah. Good for you. I think that's you know. I think that's amazing. I I I I don't want to. I also I got contacted by Question Time asking if I do that, and I wouldn't do that for the same reason because I think it's become like a platform for for right wing politicians. You know, it's become like sort of baiting now. Um, it's. I think it's just a personal choice. I do think I do do a lot of. I do all sorts of events and all sorts of journalism um, but this was a very specific case and I don't believe in legitimizing their voices with my working class voice which is what I thought they wanted to do you know they didn't actually want my journalism or my opinions or my views they wanted me and like my you know my sort of reputation as a left-wing writer to legitimize all the other shit they had on that sh that site and that was kind of the issue for me but I admire you for going on those Tommy Robinson marches because it's more than I could stomach so more power to you yeah, I'd say it depends. So, so with Hired, um, I wouldn't let the sun run an extract of it because I'm a Liverpool football supporter and um, some of my friends work for the, the staff union there and I don't want to get in the... I don't, I don't want the sun running my anything from my book or, or profiting from it in any way. But then I let the, 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 the mail run something from 
the care sector, about care work in my book, provided they couldn't change any of it. So it was just a straight kind of extract. Because the demographic that reads the Daily Mail, I want to persuade them that the care system is screwed because, partly because of austerity. So I think some, my mum reads the Daily Mail, and she's, not, she's never voted conservative. She's, she's left-leaning, but she gets the Daily Mail. It, it's, my grandmother as well does this, someone who still calls herself a socialist, but gets the Daily Mail to read about the gossip and all this other crap in there. Um, so I think it, it depends. There's, 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 yeah, it is. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's not my fault that Amazon dominates the book trade. It's, it's, um, it's I mean, uh, we, like, someone may say there are, you know, there are, there are, they don't like capitalism, but you still have to wear shoes, you know, which are made in a capitalist factory. It's, it's uh, at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's not really, um, if I had my way, it'd be shops like this, which were dominating the book trade rather than Amazon. But um, the thing is, um, yeah, this is the problem. This is why we have to, have to fight against this stuff. I'd say as well. So Amazon's a really thorny issue for me, especially because um, because I feel really strongly about like workers' rights, um, and obviously we know how appallingly Amazon behave. We don't have any option about where our, where yeah. publishers put our books, and actually they have to do that. That's just like a sort of in order to to get that book out to readers, we have to go through that. But we do have a choice where we promote them from. So I never link to Amazon anymore. I won't do that. You know, we have choices about how we promote it and where we try to. I will say as well though, like we I was part of um a big, um, uh, an open letter to Waterstones because they only pay their booksellers minimum wage. Um, you know, so actually, the, it's not that one is better than the other, it's just trying to find the most ethical way to get your words out there in a way that, that is palatable to you personally, I think, you know? Yeah, authors don't like Amazon. Amazon discounts heavily and then we make, uh, we barely make a living because it does that. So, I mean, if, if authors had their way, it wouldn't be Amazon dominating the book trade. It's a, it's a question of, we have no choice where our book's sold. The publisher decides that. If I said to my publisher, I don't want the book selling on Amazon, they would simply get someone else to write the book, take my idea, probably, and do that. <laughs> don't tell, I probably shouldn't tell them that, but yeah. They would do that. It's recorded in podcast now, forever. It's all right, we can I've edit that out, things. I feel like. We've got a couple of F-bombs that we'll need to edit out later. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, it's 4.30, we're going to have to close for today, but thank you all so, so much for coming. There are still a, a small number of copies of the book. If you haven't already picked one up, you can do so now. Um, please support your local bookshop um, and also oh, events like these. Um, and libraries. And libraries. Yeah, my library's part-time. It's terrible. Uh, but anyway, thank you all so much for coming, and thank you again. We'll be back on June 30th.